We are continuing our series uh, called The Emotions of Jesus. And what we're looking at is uh, the fact that uh, Jesus mastered his emotions. He knew them well. He wasn't one who overruled them and was stoic, nor did he model what we often think of as being the alternative of being extremely emotional and out of control. He wielded them incredibly well. And and with his emotions, he acted on them, bringing life to all mankind. John 1 said that uh, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. And so like a lighthouse bringing us into a harbor of true, proper, natural humanity and our emotions, who we are, let's look at Jesus and let him bring us in of how we're supposed to be, what it's meant to be like. Uh, In his book, After Doubt, A.J. Swoboda makes a point that uh, we have inadvertently in uh, most of Christendom created two types of churches for two types of people. We've created one church that is celebratory and joyful and another one that's sorrowful and can go into very uncomfortable moments. So in some churches, we sing and we clap our hands and we laugh. And then in others, we sit quietly and we pray and we contemplate and light candles and leave. And I guess my hope would be is that Living Way would become a place where we could grow to be able to weep with those who weep and laugh and rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, I I do think that the modern world struggles with sorrow in a way that the ancient one did not. In fact, uh, in Jesus' day, you you could hire, and often they would, professional mourners who didn't know you or your family, and they would show up at at your funerals just to cry really, really hard to get everybody else going. And it's kind of like, I, when I was thinking about this, it's kind of like there's this one time that my brother was sick with the flu, and he threw up in the shower, and I was in the bathroom, and I saw it, and then I, who was totally healthy, also began to throw up. I did this all the time. Like, what a fun day for mom, right? The joys of child rearing. Uh, just daisy chain puke going all over. And I, I, would, I would respond that way, like, I just, I I won't even say why, because this is Sunday, and it's not Wednesday, and I'm not a youth pastor anymore, but I once saw something so gross that I burst blood vessels in my eyes and cheeks. Uh, Yeah, I really get into it. I think, I think, I think the, I think the professional mourners, they would have got me. I I would have been fine, and I hear they were good, you know, like, we, you know, you only get secondhand accounts, but they would bring these people in to help them cry to get to a wedding, a wedding, excuse me, unless you were really upset that you were in love with the groom or something, maybe you want to cry at a wedding, but at a funeral, at a funeral they would come and they'd cry and it was like, just get it out and get it all out and cry your tears and mourn the person and this was the, the mourner's job, uh, a weird job, but it paid the bills. Um, more, it was like to trigger their, their gag reflex of, of weeping. They felt they needed to get the tears out to honor their loved one and to get beyond it. And we kind of get into, uh, we see this, we see the, I guess, more ancient biblical, like mourning is a very critical part of life. But we also live in the era of the new covenant and of hope and of resurrection and new life. And so it puts us into a place where we're going to have to decide what do we make of sorrow when we live with an eternal hope? Does knowing all of this, uh, that all things work together and that uh, the dead will rise again and we have eternal hope, does this make it so that we don't experience sorrow? And should it impact our expression of sorrow and pain? We're going to read a story about this today. 
um, and uh, just see how does our Lord do this? How does he handle it? We're going to start in uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 11, starting right off in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, uh, uh, whose brother is Lazarus, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair, which is interesting. That's a reference to something that has not yet happened. So John wrote his gospel right before he died. It's the last gospel to be written. People knew the story, so he's referencing the future in his book, but everybody knows the story. So the sisters went, or the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you will love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, and God's Son may be glorified through it. I want to make sure I end at the right spot. Quick notes, peek. Sorry, everybody. Uh, Now, Jesus uh, loved Mary and Martha and and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there two more days and then said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and, you, uh, and yet uh, you want to go back. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Uh, Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So uh, So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, doubting Thomas, by the way. Uh, what a terrible thing. Like, this guy did so many things. Doubting Thomas. Um, also known as Didymus, maybe that's why they're putting this thing, like, come on, quit calling him that, uh, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Lazarus might have liked his facts and getting them straight, but he certainly didn't lack courage. Um, Jesus says something pretty remarkable in this. The sickness will not end in death. Now, you might be familiar with the story of Lazarus. Lazarus totally dies. He dies. But Jesus isn't actually wrong about this. He is right. That statement is correct. This doesn't end in death. Lazarus does die, but Jesus is telling the truth. This further explains why his disciples were confused. The term falling asleep for someone who is dead, was actually very common in their time. Jews very much believed in the resurrection of the dead at the end of all things and that life would be given back to all of God's people. And so that was a common term. But he just told them that this would not end in death. Jesus' promise of this hope might have made it hard for them to understand what was going on. Sorrow for them comes at a shocking time that Lazarus, whom they all loved and knew, was in fact dead. And sorrow can be a surprise to us because sometimes God's good promises make us think we won't encounter it, or that if we do, something wrong happens, something, something broke through. Jesus said it wouldn't end in sorrow and sadness, but sorrow and sadness are absolutely going to happen. Though the trials may last for the night, as we often sing, the joys come in the morning. Sorrow is happening, and it won't end in sorrow, but sorrow is going to happen. 
They're very concerned because last Jesus was in this region, he barely escaped an angry mob who was trying to get the whole crucifixion thing started early. This seems like an extremely wrong time to go back, that he barely escaped and he's wanting to return to all of this. In fact, you read it and it says that he really loved Lazarus, so he waited two days. And you're like, what? What? Why did you say, don't you mean, but he waited two days? The thing is, is that he comes back with haste because he just left somewhere because of how hostile it was, went back to other regions to teach there, and he waits and comes back, uh, returning to a place of a lot of danger. And in fact, this is the last march of Jesus into Judea. These are his last miracles. These are the last things he's doing. Thomas seems to sense this, that Jesus is marching to his death and, and notes it when he says, let us go and die with him. Disillusionment is already beginning. Jesus gave the teaching where all these people were following him, thousands and thousands. And he was, he was getting this enormous following and everybody was getting worried about how popular he was becoming, particularly the Pharisees. And Jesus says that I'm the bread of life, eat my, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and it freaked everybody out and they all leave. And so the 12 disciples, they just watched this massive disillusionment take place, years of growing this group. And, he's, and Jesus says to them, aren't you going to go also? And they go, where else are we going to go? What are we going to do? I mean, these guys had not, they didn't have a backup plan. Disillusionment is beginning. It's already whittling down. It's becoming smaller and smaller. And the words of Thomas seem to show that they're sensing that things are going to get difficult. This is, in fact, the resurrection of Lazarus is the last miraculous work of Jesus before the cross. They're marching into sorrow. And this is going to be a very difficult time for them. Just in the way Lazarus, though, isn't going to end in death. Theirs isn't going to either. But they are going into sorrow. And they're going to get a taste of it beforehand. And this last miracle, it's preparing disciples for the kind of sorrow they're going to see. Of life after death. Of when things seem so incredibly dead, there isn't a hope to them anymore and they return. I think sometimes, actually... uh, I was, it was funny, when I wrote the sermon on anger, I went to the grotto, like, it's so peaceful, it's totally uh, backwards. Also, a Protestant at the grotto, how controversial. Uh, <laughs> but I was walking, and they just have so many, like, if you're not familiar, the grotto is beautiful, but it's dedicated to the Our Lady of Sorrows. So it's all the sorrowful stories, and there's a part where they show the disciples taking Jesus down. And, you know, we don't do a lot of drawings and paintings of Jesus in Protestant world. And so as I was looking at it, I was thinking of how incredibly shocking that must have been to the few that remained behind. All of his guys are leaving. There's only a few that are actually there. And he is their absolute hope. He is everything to them. He has been the center of their life. He has the words of life. That's what they told him, in fact. After the whole flesh and blood teaching debacle, they said, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? And to take him down and to feel the stiffness of his joints and the coldness of his skin, the thoroughly deadness of Jesus. It's a sorrow you can't imagine. Jesus is going to make one final march into Jerusalem and and it's going to end in his death. But it's not the end end. And it is the right thing to do. Jesus says in verse 9 and 10, he says, uh, are there not 12 Hours of daylight, and anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night, they stumble, for they have no light. 
there is this apprehension to go where Jesus wants to go. But he is the light of all mankind, and it is critical that they follow him even into this dark moment. The light will lead you into darkness, but it won't be utter darkness to you. It's almost like Jesus is in a cave near the mouth, and you've got a little bit of light, and things seem normal, but he's got a lantern, and he wants to go deeper in. And you're going to just have to go with him. If you want light and you want to see where you're going to be and not be lost, you're going to have to go into the darkness with him right alongside him. We need to go with Jesus when he says it's time to go into difficult things. Jesus leads us. Do you guys hear that too? Is it coming through the sound system? There's no way my nephew's that loud. All right, sorry. Ollie is being led into darkness right now. Um, (laughs) Jesus leads us into times of sorrow, and it's not a failing on his part. It's not that he failed to protect Lazarus or himself or the disciples that burst out and uh, run into hiding. He's not ignorant of the danger. Because really, as much as it feels like it, sorrow is an evil. Sorrow is an emotion we feel when we're faced with evil when we're faced with things that shouldn't be the way that they are being, when they become difficult. Continuing on, we're going to continue the story. Uh, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them at the loss of their brother, probably mourners in there. Uh, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said uh, to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, "Uh, I know he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives uh, by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. Oh, wait, I skipped. That's why I read last time. We were supposed to stop there, everybody. I powered right on through. All her hopes are dashed. On day four. And there's actually something very critical about day four. Rabbis taught that for three days after a person died, the human spirit was around and present. And uh, there was still a little bit of glimmer of hope. Like they, they were dead, but this hope of maybe something might change would go for three days. But on, they said that on day four, the soul had to depart and go into Sheol or the grave. This is dead and buried without hope. This is the deadest person Jesus ever raised from the dead. This isn't hours. This isn't moments. This is rigor mortis. This is gone. This is even by Jewish beliefs that aren't accurate. Nothing in the Bible says that you've got extra hope for three days, but it's what they believed. He is gone, gone. And she's expressing the sorrow for what it is that it's difficult now. She has this faith that at the end of all things, yes, Lazarus will be risen up again. He will see resurrection in the end times, but she is sorrowful now. 
And she's expressing her sorrow now for what it really is and what's really on her mind. She's not going to insinuate that Jesus can do nothing. That's the statement that I know you can do everything. I know that you can, but you weren't here. This is the kind of struggle and the kind of tension and the things that come out of our hearts when we feel like we know, God, you are so powerful and you could have done anything, but for some reason you didn't, and the bad thing happened. To trust God in hardship, the knowing that he's completely in control, that we have this deep faith that he could have done something and did not, that is very difficult to be in. And Martha's having a hard time with it. Martha's confiding in Jesus is absolutely not rebuked by him. We have to remember Jesus spoke his mind. When there was something that needed to be confronted, he was very good at it. He didn't pull those kinds of punches. Yet in hardship, he listens to everything she has to say, and he's comforting to her. In hardship, God is not insulted when you express what's really going on inside of you and what you're really feeling. So often we pray the things that we feel like should be in us. And think about how much your prayer life would change if you prayed what was actually in you. If you prayed with faith, knowing that God is omniscient, he sees everything, he knows all of it. And out of that faith, we say, this is what I'm really feeling, even though it is not polished, it's not nice, it's not perfect, I can't defend everything I'm saying, but here's the depth of what is within me. God sees you in all of it, and you can express your faith in him in that moment and his omniscience by being very honest with him. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, he says. You see, this is, this, like I said, this is the last miracle that takes place before the uh, crucifixion. In many ways, it's monumental, and it points to everything, that Jesus is the one that gives hope to the deadest of the dead who will be there, who will bring light. Though death may claim us all, Jesus has resurrection and full life for everyone. I'll tell you, Christ did raise Lazarus. We're going to get to a point here, and if you've never read the, the, that story before, I'm so sorry I ruined the ending for you. But he does. He raises him from the dead. And though it's not in the Bible, we do know that Lazarus has definitely died again, and he's remained dead. Lazarus was raised once, But Lazarus makes it into a very small group of people who are going to be raised twice. Lazarus is dead, but he's going to be raised again. All those in Jesus die like seeds planted in the ground that come back with hope of eternal life. So this is why we don't mourn like other people mourn. Christ will make all things new. And death and sickness are going to be defeated. There are some people that Christ is going to heal this side of the grave. Some people he's going to give resurrected life to this side of it. But all who are in Christ are healed that side of the grave. And all defeat death. Death is going to be broken. And this is a glimmer of hope, a a small sampling of what is ahead. But it doesn't ease the pain in the moment completely. We do have hope, and it comes over us, but the pain is still present. Let's continue reading. Uh, After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. Uh, The teacher is here, she said. 
And he's asking for you. And Mary heard this, and she uh, got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came along with her also weeping, he was moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's remarkable because Jesus knows how this is going to turn out. He knows what's going to happen. Almost like watching a sad movie and knowing that at the end it has a happy ending. And he still cries. He still weeps. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He knows that people are going to be surprised. But what's interesting is actually before he weeps, he rages. It's not translated super well, but when it says he was troubled in spirit, it's an incredibly angry word. He rages and weeps. Jesus is indignant at this final enemy of death, what it's done and what it does to people. His life has been building up to this top-billed match. Jesus, the, the Savior, Jesus, the enemy of death, facing death itself. And Jesus hates death because of his love for people. That kind of hate does not come from itself. It comes because God's love of those that it takes, those that it hurts. In the same way that you would hate the neighbor's dog that bit your kid. It's not like you just hated that dog until it bit your kid, but it bites your kid and now you hate that dog. Verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Uh, If you're ever wondering why John made it the shortest verse in the Bible, he didn't. Uh, The original manuscripts don't have chapters and numbers. You can blame John Calvin for that, another John. He's the one that put them on there. Um, Jesus is uh, choosing mourning here. And his mourning, it's amazing because he knows how it ends, and he told us how it ends. He believes how it ends. This isn't going to end in death. His tears aren't about the ending. It's about what it is right now. Where he is at right now in this moment. Another time Jesus weeps, he comes to Jerusalem in Luke 19, and and he cries over the city because all of their history, they've waited for the, the son of David, the Messiah to come, to reign over them, to lead them, and to save them. And they don't recognize the day it is. They don't know the judgment that's coming behind it if they fail in this moment. And they're so full of hatred for him that he just is weeping as to what's going to happen to them. Jesus knows how that story ends as well. He knows that Jerusalem will one day receive the Messiah, that the Jewish people as a collective is prophesied will say, Jesus, come in and reign over us. And even though he knows that, he still weeps because it is sad in that moment. The moment is sad enough. We have things that we mourn and things that are difficult, and we know that there can be hope in those things, like that we'll see family in eternity. But on the day of loss, it just plain hurts. And Jesus says, weep. Oh, 
this kind of hope that we have, this eternal hope, it doesn't mean that the mourners are people who are faithless, those who cry and weep. The tears of Jesus didn't mean that he lost sight of the hope, as if he forgot that in moments Lazarus is going to come out of the grave. Tears do not mean that we lose sight either. Sorrow really isn't the same as despair. These are very different things. Despair is something that we get stuck in, something we refuse to move beyond, something that claims the whole life. And typically that comes because we avoided sorrow. You know, the greatest thing we can offer someone who's in sorrow isn't uh, wonderful, hopeful quotes often. Things like, everything happens for a reason. God will never give you more than you can handle. Everything's going to turn out in the end. When Jesus was with people who sorrowed, he did speak in hope, but he also just wept with him. And the thing that made everybody connect, okay, Jesus really loved him. He loved these sisters, was the moment that he wept with them. There is hope and there's good things to cling to, but in the moment, just being present with people and mourning with them, it means more than anything. There's a lot of things. Jesus mourns death, but we mourn plenty of things. Death, certainly. But we mourn life changes. I was uh, talking to my daughter a while ago, and I, she said, she, I, I need you to carry me. And she didn't, but I was like, whatever. She's not always going to ask for this, so I'm picking her up. We're walking. And I said, hey, when I get old, are you going to carry me? And she thought about it for a while, and she said, no, because I'll be carrying my toys. And... <laughs> I had this immediate sadness response to that, actually, because I realized she's not always going to be like that. I mean, the whole reason I picked her up is because I felt like this is a temporary time. And this idea, when I said that I'm imagining Victoria as an adult and she's imagining herself just with dad carrying toys, we mourn life changes. We were mourn the ending of relationships, global events like the terrible stuff going on in Ukraine that we've been praying for. Death isn't the only thing that we mourn and the only times that Jesus will lead us into tides of sorrow. Those things come from many different things. And really, the important thing to do is to recognize what they are and to follow him. Let's finish the story. Picking up in 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was uh, a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, uh, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, and he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the benefit of all the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in linen strips and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and set him free. The 
This is an extremely painful and mournful time, a time that you let go to such a point that even though Jesus seems to be insinuating he's going to raise your brother from the dead, uh, if you're Martha, you keep thinking he's talking about the end times because he is dead, dead, and it's over. It's such an interesting detail. Martha did not want to open the tomb. In fact, the NIV, my, the NIV softens the, the term a bit. She's really talking about the stink. She says, you can't open it. It stinks. It's been four days. It's painful and hard enough, and the grief is overwhelming. It's so painful. It's hard for her to hope that these insinuations that Jesus is saying, something's going to happen at the grave of Lazarus, and he's going to get raised from the dead. She's having a hard time accepting and letting herself put some hope and belief in that. She doesn't want to go back. She doesn't want to dig it up. She doesn't want to face the stench. Jesus, don't make me go back there. Don't make me open it up. Don't make me put away the things that I've put away. And Jesus makes her open it up and brings her through that pain again. But at the other end of it is this incredible hope. We close tombs in our sorrow all the time. And if we do it prematurely, we can count on a revisit. That we put things away, we bury them, roll the stone. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to face it. I don't want to see it. Don't make me look at it, Lord. Don't make me see it. Don't make me face it. Don't make me face the, 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 the grossness of the pain, the difficulty of it. 400,000 people set out on the Oregon Trail to come to the Willamette Valley. 30,000 people made it. And it's not because they all died. There was death. Most of them just stopped somewhere. There's a lot of people that stopped along the Rockies. It was a large, long, hard trail enough, and it was going to get more difficult. A lot of people had an incredibly hard time getting over the Cascades. It was very different. It was not the dry, arid, easy place to go through. So they stopped along the way, and they ended there because it was hard to pass. Whatever you choose not to go through, you are not going to get past. What stops you keeps you. If you, go, if you don't go through sorrow, you don't go through it. You don't walk through it. You don't move past it. Those people that are in despair, they're people that didn't get through it. They, they, didn't, they had this deep desire not to let go, not to say goodbye, not to move on beyond it because it was going to make it so final for them. You don't come up for air, laugh, dream, or ever hope again because something inside of us will sometimes say that sorrow keeps it alive. Whatever the it is, if it is a person, if it's a relationship, if it's the way things used to be, that if I ever move beyond it and hope for something again, this side of it, I'm letting it go forever. And they won't move through it and they don't move beyond it. I read this book to my daughter uh, before bed sometimes, uh, going on a bear hunt. And in this book, the family, they come to these obstacles multiple times, and they say the same phrase, you can't go over it, and you can't go under it, you have to go through it. You cannot go over sorrow in vain platitudes, or shedding no tears and just saying, everything's going to be fine, and I'm going to be just okay, I'm going to get past it. You cannot go under it, refusing to move beyond it, letting it bury you forever because you don't want to let go. You have to go through it. But we go through it with the light of all mankind. 
a light that shines in the darkness, and the people do not stumble. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that your light would be with us right now. That if this is something that you're speaking to us to hang on to for the future that's ahead of us, let us remember it when the time comes and when sorrow is on us. Lord, I lift up those who are in the middle of sorrow right now. Lord, would your Holy Spirit be directing the tears and hope of the sadness and the joy. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for the difficult pain of needing to say goodbye and to move beyond and to go with the light. Lord, how we say in our hearts, I don't want to go. I don't want to go in deeper. I don't want to smell it. I don't want to face it. Lord, if the disciples were wise and good to remain with the light, to remain with Jesus, even into darkness, into difficult times and into Jerusalem, if Martha was wise and Mary was wise to follow Jesus back to the grave and open the stone again, then we are wise to remain with you wherever you lead us. You know how to mourn and you know how to go through difficult times. Not because it's normal to you, because you hate death and you hate the suffering and it fills you with rage. You know to mourn because we live in a dark world and some things just require some tears. If you could shed them, Lord, so can we. God, fashion us to the image of your son. Conform us to the image of the son that we would be wise in times of mourning mature and able to release, able to even go back into the past, Lord, that if you are knocking on the hearts of people in here to go back and to roll open a grave again and to face it and to go past it, I pray for courage in Jesus' name. May your spirit lead us, God, and we remember that even though the time of mourning comes and the difficult comes, joy comes in the morning, there are things ahead of us. There's something past that. There's something beyond it. Let us honor loss with life. In your name we pray.